your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium. Radon gas, it can seep into basements and present a risk for lung cancer. Where does the radon come from? And what would you be doing if you were, quote, oil pulling? Those are the two questions we're going to start the show with today. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society, and I chat with you here every Sunday afternoon about happenings in the world of science, bringing you up to date on the most novel things, but also sometimes looking at history, because if we don't know where we have been, we won't know where we are going. And I also like to tantalize you with questions like the two that I offered. If you know the answer, you call us at 514-790-0800. That's also the number to call. Uh, for any science-related question that uh, may have crossed your mind. You can also text me at 514-800. I want to start today with uh, an interesting story. And uh, we're going to go back to the 17th century, the time when King Charles II ruled in England and Scotland. The physician in his court all of a sudden became apoplectic. Why? Because the king had appointed Robert Talbor, a man they considered not only to be unqualified, but they thought he was a charlatan. But the king had appointed him as his personal physician. Well, truly, Talbor did not have any training as a physician. Although, truth be told, uh, what training did doctors have in those days anyway? I mean, even the ones who supposedly had legitimate training. Uh, what did they do? They learned uh, about purging and bloodletting and using various herbs. They hoped to restore the balance of the four bodily humors. Blood, yellow bile, black bile, phlegm. That was a theory that had been championed thousands of years ago by Hippocrates and Galen, And it had held sway for unbelievable amount of time, even though it lacked any scientific validity. Well, Tabor had been an apprentice to an apothecary in Cambridge, where he had learned about Jesuit bark. Well, that had been introduced to Europe around 1630 from South America. One story, oh, almost certainly apocryphal, is told of how the Countess of Xingchan wife of the Spanish Viceroy of Peru, was cured of what at the time was called Tertian fever with a preparation made from the bark of a tree. Well, Tertian fever was so-called because the fever would cycle roughly every three days. Today, of course, we know this as malaria. Well, the Countess was immediately um, cured, supposedly, when she was given the bark of a tree. And she was so um, amazed at this that she gave orders that all the sick in Peru be given this bark extract. And when she returned to Spain, she sang its praises. And that's when Jesuit Cardinal de Lugo heard about the bark and took it for testing to Rome, 
where then Jesuit bark spread through Europe. It's an interesting and romanticized story, but it really isn't true. The Countess, while well, she actually did live in, uh, in Peru and may even have had uh, Turkian fever, but she never did return to Spain. So she did not introduce this to, uh, to Europe. An account that has, I think, somewhat more historical evidence describes South American natives who had to cross a river up to their necks in cold water, and this made them shiver. And they had found that if they would drink a decoction of the bark of this special tree in hot water, then the shivering would subside. And supposedly Jesuit missionaries learned of this practice and reasoning by analogy, they tried it for malaria and found that it worked and then they introduced it to Europe. There's a problem with this story as well, because quinine, which is the active ingredient in the Jesuit bark, works against malaria because it kills the parasite that causes the disease. And this would not be effective to stop shivering from the cold. So it was sort of an accidental discovery, fortuitous discovery, that, that it just so happened that when they mistakenly believed that this would stop shivering from, from cold, it happened to cure malaria. In any case, the Swedish botanist Linnaeus seems to have believed the Countess of Sinchon fable and named the tree Sinchona. And uh, that is the name that, that uh, we still uh, use today. And it is the bark of that tree that is effective in, in the treatment of malaria. Now, once again, we go back to the 1600s. The Cinchona bark had been introduced by one means or another, whichever story you believe, to, to Europe. And uh, from the beginning, it was mired in controversy. Physicians in general questioned its use. Why? because it did not have any purgative effect, and therefore it did not fit into the humoral theory of disease. Also, since there was no standardized way of administering the bark or, or any of its extracts, obviously the remedy did not always work because effectiveness is a question of dosage and the dosage were, were all over the place depending how the thing was prepared. But then along came Tabor, who in 1672, introduced a secret remedy against malaria in a book that he published called A Rational Account of the Cause of Cure of Eggs, the Cause and Cure of Eggs, A-G-U-E-S, in which he warned about problems that could befall sufferers who were treated with Jesuit bark. And he tried to cast a shadow over the use of Jesuit bark. The kicker of this story, though, is that the secret remedy that he promoted was in fact Sanchona bark, and Talbor had found a way to prepare a reliable extract. Now, a French nobleman who had landed in Essex in England on his way to discuss battle plans against the Dutch with King Charles came down with malaria, and he heard about Talbor's remedy, and he was cured. He was so impressed with the way that this had worked that he recounted the experience of King Charles, who immediately sent for Talbor and was so taken with the man that he appointed him his personal physician. This, of course, drew outrage and criticism from other doctors. 
when the son of his cousin, Louis XIV of France, who was Charles II's cousin, when his son, the Dauphin, became ill with malaria, Charles dispensed Talbot to help, and he cured the boy. His fame began to spread, especially after he also cured the Queen of Spain of malaria. And King Louis was so impressed that he offered Talbot a large sum to reveal the secret of the cure. And Talbot agreed, as long as it would not be during his lifetime. Turned out that his lifetime was not very long. He died at the age of 39. Although he had become a wealthy man, not only from what Louis had uh, paid him, but uh, all of the people that he had cured had given him all kinds of, of gifts. Every finger on his hand held a ring. So anyway, after he died, Louis commissioned a book in which the secret was revealed. And it was, of course, cinchona bark steeped in rose leaves, lemon juice, and wine. And that remedy became popular. And it was effective as a treatment for, uh, for malaria until it was superseded by a preparation of almost pure quinine. And that was isolated by two French chemists, Pierre-Joseph Pelletier and Joseph Bienem Cavantou, who had managed to isolate virtually pure quinine from the cinchona bark. And that was in 1820. And that began the large-scale manufacture of quinine, and it saved multitudes from the misery of malaria. While Talbor had some elements of a charlatan with his insinuation of having found the secret formula, Charles II's faith in the man paid off. Why? Not only did Talbor eventually cure many in Europe, but Charles himself would directly benefit when he came down with malaria, and he was cured by Talbor's secret remedy. So there is a bit of history for you about cinchona bark and quinine for the treatment of, of malaria, uh, and today, quinine is, is rarely, but not, not frequently used because uh, there are other drugs that are more effective. But uh, it was responsible for saving many, many people from the misery of this terrible disease in Europe from the middle of the 17th century on. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. And uh, once again, let me just repeat the questions that, uh, that I had uh, raised. Radon gas can seep into basements, present a risk for lung cancer. Where does it come from? And what would you be doing if you were oil pulling? Five one four seven nine zero zero eight hundred is our number, and you can also text me at five one four eight hundred with any science-related comment or question, and especially if you know the answers to the two questions I posed, what would you be doing if you were oil pulling? And the radon gas that can seep into basements and presents a risk for lung cancer, where does radon come from? 514-790-0800 or text 514-800. You know, over the uh, 41 years that I've been doing this show, uh, obviously, I've gotten a lot of uh, comments, uh, and in the old days, of course, I used to get snail mail, lots of, of letters. Uh, those have disappeared, so now everything comes uh, either via email or 
uh, on on the social media. And uh, I can tell you that um, in the past four decades, uh, almost all of the the comments have been uh, complimentary, which of course is is very pleasing, or have been you know very legitimate questions. However, ever since uh, COVID nineteen, and uh, ever since I <laughs> promoted vaccination and uh, started to criticize the unscientific views that some people have on this this affliction. Uh, I have been plagued by all kinds of, of insensitive and often insulting comments, you know, uh, uh, questioning the marital status of my parents and, uh, you know, various uh, things like that and, and accusing me of being a shill for, uh, for Big Pharma, uh, of, of being unscientific. I mean, all of this, this kind of what I consider to be nonsense. I do not have allegiance to anyone or anything except the scientific method. Uh, it makes no difference to me whether or not, you know, a vaccine or any kind of regimen is proven to be safe or, or not. What matters is that whatever decision is arrived at is arrived at through proper scientific thinking and through scientific methodology and proper randomized controlled uh, trials. And uh, uh, of course, there are a lot of people out there who have different views on this. And I hear from all of the conspiracy theories, you know, from the, the lunatic fringe who think that they, they, uh, the vaccine magnetizes us or, or has uh, some sort of uh, microchip built into it uh, at the behest of, uh, of Bill Gates. To the, the reasonable ones, uh, you know, questioning the efficacy of the vaccine and, and just uh, how it works. And of course, I don't mind answering those questions and, and discussing it. But some of the, the, the conspiracy theorists are, are really uh, abusive. And uh, I think some of them actually believe what they say, but um, they're lacking any kind of scientific background so that they don't have the weaponry with which to to make the kind of decisions that they have uh, they have made uh, but in any case uh, in just the the, the kind of, of personal attacks uh just are are uh just not not only irresponsible but but unethical and this is just not the way that you know the scientific discussions should should proceed it should proceed by means of the data now, you know, I have questions, you know, legitimate questions that people ask, and, and that is that, you know, even with this uh, uh, huge uh, success, I think we would call it in success uh, rate here in Quebec with the vaccination, that we still have uh, cases. Uh, so is, is vaccination worthwhile? I mean, th those are legitimate questions. You know, you look at the data and you see that, you know, we have seven, eight hundred infections um, every day, even though we have uh, increased vaccination. And of course, there are answers to that because we're now dealing with the Delta variant, which is, is, is more infectious. Also, unfortunately, people have begun to relax and they've begun to, to, to gather and not always in a, you know, uh, using masks the way that they, they, they should, be, uh, should be used. Uh, but, you know, when people say, well, you know, what's the point of vaccination if we see that it, it, it doesn't work? Well, it's not true that it doesn't work. It doesn't work 100% of the time. That is true. It is not perfect. But there's no question 
that it cuts down on infections and it cuts down on people being in the hospital. I mean, we have all the data on that. All you have to do is, is look at hospitalizations. It is, it is very clear. But just because it doesn't work all the time doesn't mean that we should uh, disregard the practice. So let me, let me give you an analogy. Uh, football players, of course, wear helmets. Why do they wear helmets? In order to protect themselves against concussions. Does it work all the time? Of course not. There are all kinds of, of players who suffer uh, concussions uh, every season, particularly in the NFL, where they vigorously butt heads, right? It happens. However, it would happen a lot more if they weren't wearing helmets. So the helmets are not 100% protective. Of course not. Neither are the safety helmets that workers wear, you know, construction workers. But that doesn't mean we should eliminate them. Airbags don't work all the time. doesn't mean that we eliminate them. We always look at the risk-benefit profile and see what the successes are and compare those to the failures. And when you look at the vaccine, you just have to look at the real data. Not the, the, the data that is, is, is contrived by the conspiracy theorists, but the real data put together by, by you know, proper peer-reviewed science. And we see that the, the vaccines work. So um, whether or not we need the third booster at this stage, uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't have you know, enough expertise to, to determine that. Uh, so we have to wait until the experts weigh in. And I think I have enough expertise to then determine whether or not it's worthwhile by looking at whatever has been published. Uh, we have some intriguing uh, results from Israel. I mean, Israel is a very interesting example, of course, because in the beginning, they had the highest vaccination rate in the world. And uh, their, their infection rate was virtually zero. There were no uh, patients in ICU wards. Uh, it looked like they had really beaten it. And then all of a sudden, the rate started to skyrocket. Why? Because I think there was too early relaxation. And also the um, uh, Delta variant hit. So they started to have increased rates again. And now they have introduced the third booster. I think now they're giving it down to age, age 40 or, you know, I think it may now be even anyone who asked for it. And uh, now they are once again starting to see the decline in infection rate, showing that this third booster works. Now, here in North America, neither Canada or the U.S. FDA has yet approved the third dose. Uh, they're not convinced that we need it, especially because so many people still have not had the second dose. And the World Health Organization also argues against it, but I think there it's for a different reason. It is because of the ethics that are involved. And uh, given the fact that uh, uh, so much of the developing world uh, hasn't even had a single dose of vaccine, it's unethical for us here to get the third dose when they haven't had any. So those are, uh, are the arguments, and we'll see how this works out. Uh, but, you know, I, I'm not sure about that ethical argument because in North America, we do have right now a large excess of, of, of production, and it is possible to have a third dose here 
without affecting what is being given out to the third world. It, it's sort of, you know, the, the argument is, as, as many parents say, uh, you know, to their children, eat everything on your plate, uh, because imagine all the starving people, you know, elsewhere in the world. But just because we have the excess, uh, it doesn't mean that that excess can go to uh, the developing uh, world. And uh, I think that's the, the story with the vaccine. We'll see. Anyway, I think it will eventually turn out that we will need a third booster and probably a booster every year. I think that's going to be at the end result. Anyway, uh, I, uh, I think we have an answer to my radon question that was texted in. We will go over that. Uh, but I still have the question about what we, you would be doing if you were oil pulling. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. All right, let's get back to my question. Uh, Dr. Jerry Riley is a dentist here in Montreal who often has correct answers to my questions, and he has answered both of them, and he's sort of one and a half correct. So <clears throat> let, let's first deal with the one where he totally is correct when I asked about oil pulling. And he says, it is the ridiculous notion that swishing oil in your mouth will somehow pull out toxins and bacteria responsible for periodontal problems. Yes, it is. It is uh, uh, nonsensical, uh, and it goes back to ancient uh, Ayurvedic uh, theory in 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 India, and the idea is that if you take coconut or sesame or sunflower oil and swish it around in your mouth for twenty minutes, it is somehow going to promote oral health, prevent tooth decay, uh, bad mouth odor, and bleeding uh, gums. And supposedly, it also reduces the concentration of the streptococcus mutans bacteria, which can cause cavities. Well, probably swishing anything around in your mouth for a while will dislodge, you know, some food remnants. So it may have some effect like that. Although I think swishing oil around in your mouth for 20 minutes is a pretty, pretty disgusting thing uh, to do. But what is even more disgusting is to suggest that this has an effect on the overall health of the body and that somehow it pulls toxins out of the system. And uh, many of the websites that promote oil pulling don't only talk about oral health, but overall health. This is absolute nonsense. Uh, you know, the swishing something around in the mouth for 20 minutes, I, I, I think in terms of oral health, may actually have some tiny contribution by, you know, just dislodging any food remnants that, that you may have. But to suggest that this is a treatment for disease is, is absolute nonsense. The only effect it could have uh, would be a placebo effect. All right. Now, the other question about the origin of radon gas. The radon gas can build up in basements. It seeps up from the, from the ground. And uh, that can be a problem because radon is, is radioactive and it can lead to, to lung cancer. And my question was, what is the orig origin of, uh, of radon? Where does it come from? And Jerry answered that it is from radon. Well, that is partially correct. Indeed, radium forms from the direct radioactive decay uh, by alpha particle emission of, 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 of radon. But radon itself... Uh, the question is, where does that come from? So I, I'm looking at what is the original material that is found in the ground from which eventually radon is, is produced. 
and indeed radium is part of the scheme. It is the one that breaks down to produce radon, but where does radium come from? All right, so that, that question is, is still uh, still out there, but I will now, of course, replace the question that was answered by another one. Back in 1929, Chinese investigators found a correlation between low fertility in males and cooking with a certain type of oil. What oil was that? So again, in 1929, investigators found a correlation between low fertility in males and cooking with a certain oil. And this is true. It, this is a, a true story, and there's a real reason for this. So it's, it's not nonsense. So what kind of oil reduced fertility in men who cooked with it back in, uh, in 1929. You know, funny the things that one remembers. Like, you know, for me, Dawn's Fountain of Youth, which is a short cartoon, which, which I saw sometime back in the 1960s, when, of course, I would regularly watch cartoons on, on TV. And Don, of course, was Donald Duck. And the story was all about taking his nephews on a Florida vacation. And the, uh, the nephews are more interested in reading comics than the sites that Donald is pointing out, at least until they chance upon a pond with a sign mistaken for the Fountain of Youth by Ponce de Leon, 1512. Well, Donald decides to have a little fun with his nephews and removes the mistaken for part of the sign. And he wades into the water and pretends to have turned into an egg that he found in a nearby nest. Well, I was intrigued by that cartoon for a couple of reasons. Uh, I was sort of a history buff even back then and wondered whether the reference to Ponce de Leon was real or fictional. And the Fountain of Youth caught my attention because I had grown up with a special fondness for perhaps the most famous Hungarian musical of all, uh, called John the Valiant. And that was based on a poem by the celebrated uh, poet Sándor Petőfi, in which the spring of life capable of conferring immortality plays a vital role. Anyway, checking the Encyclopedia Britannica in those pre-Google days revealed that Ponce de Leon was indeed a real Spanish explorer who gave Florida its name upon seeing the landscape filled with flowers. Stories about his search for a fountain of youth, however, did not emerge until after his death, and these appear to be mythical. But tales of waters that restore youth have been with us for thousands of years. Alexander the Great supposedly looked for a restorative spring, and in a famous 1546 painting by Lucas Cranach the Elder, depicts aging people entering a pool on one side and emerging as youths on the other. Well, these days, the search for the fountain of youth is more likely to lead us to a bottle than a spring or a lake. There are waters that are oxygenated, hydrogenated, alkalized, ionized, clustered, frequency harmonized, catalyst altered, photonically enhanced, plasma activated, vibrationally charged, chi energized, or DNA encoded. Their ads flood us with scientific sounding lingo and promises of health and rejuvenation. But the science is all wet and drips with crackpot notions. If a fountain of youth is to be found, it may indeed be found in a bottle. 
but it won't be filled with penta or double helix or negative field activated water. It may have some sort of pharmaceutical product in it. That's possible that in the future there will act actually be uh, some remedies uh, derived by pharmaceutical chemists that can have a, a rejuvenating effect. That is, is, is possible but not these gimmicky waters that, that are, are sold uh, uh, in many, many stores, especially in health food stores uh, uh, these days. And you, found, you find them a lot more in supermarkets in the U.S. than you do in, in, in Canada. Now, why do I remember stories about Donald Duck and, and cartoons? Uh, Donald has been a particular favorite of mine, uh, as you might guess, because as you probably know, I collect ducks of all kinds. And I, I do have some Donald Duck uh, figurines. And uh, I used to have all kinds of Donald Duck cart uh, cartoons and comic books as well, which unfortunately I no longer have uh, because, you know, I used to collect comic books um, when I was in elementary school and even in, in, in high school. Of course, in, in those days, we collected comic books and we actually read them. Uh, we didn't buy them to, to save for posterity in case they go up in, in value and store them in plastic containers. I wish I had done that. But anyway, I did have a, a lot of comics, including some Superman comics, which probably by now would have been rare. Uh, but then uh, when I, I got to university, I, I thought that, uh, you know, I was too old to be collecting uh, comics and I gave them away. And uh to some kids in the in the neighborhood, which I probably should not have done, uh, I did the same kind of, of silliness with my Triang electric trains. I had a beautiful Triang electric train set when I was, uh, uh, I guess, a young teenager. And uh, again, when I got to university, I thought, well, I'm not going to play with these trains again. I gave them away. And uh, if you want to check out how disturbing that is, uh, just take a look at uh, eBay and see what uh, Triang uh, electric trays, which are trains which are no longer manufactured, are now selling for. And I, I had a variety of, of engines. I had all kinds of cars. I had uh, uh, even, uh, you know, houses and, and railroad yards. I, I had a whole set. But, you know, such is the folly of youth. And I gave it away together with my cartoon uh, my comic books, where I suspect I had some Superman comics that today would be uh, rather valuable. Okay, uh, Jerry has texted back with this time with uh, the correct answer, and that is uranium, more specifically uranium-238. Uh, uranium-238 is the isotope of uranium that, that is found in the ground, and it uh, is the beginning of the radioactive decay, which eventually produces uh, uh, radon gas. And uh, it depends uh, on, on uh, the particular geology of where someone is living, whether or not that they can accumulate radon in their basement. And, uh, you know, it's very possible to have radon in one house and not in an adjacent house, depending on the fissures in the soil. In the Montreal uh, area, it is rare to have uh, radon contamination, not impossible, but rare. But other places like Winnipeg, it is quite common. And then you have to find a way to, to get rid of the radon in, in the basement uh, by using uh, some, some kind of fan system, uh, because it can be a legitimate uh, problem.
You know that all the shows that uh, that I do are recorded, and you can access the podcasts of this show or all of the previous ones by going to our website, which is www.mcgill.ca/oss. That is also the website where you can go to sign up for our free weekly newsletter, which is informative and I hope entertaining. And you can also go there to view all my videos. <clears throat> and uh, I, I produce a video most every day. They're short. They're about three minutes long. And uh, I bring up, I think, interesting topics and try to make it sort of uh, fun. And if you, uh, well, you can always go on our website to view those. I also tend to put them on, on Facebook. But if you want to be on the mailing list for these, uh, you can text me. And... Uh, or email me. You email me and I will put your, your email address on our mailing list. And my, my email is joe.schwarcz at mcgill.ca. And obviously, you can also email whatever questions that, uh, that you may have. <clears throat> I'm also going to, to ask you to mark October 25th and 26th at 7 p.m. on your calendar. Uh, that is uh, this year's Trottier Public Science Symposium. And uh, those of you who have been with us in, in the past know that these have been uh, amazing events uh, held live. We'd have, you know, six, seven hundred people crammed into the uh, uh, Mount Royal uh, Center on Sherbrooke Street here. Unfortunately, because of COVID last year, we had to do it online and we have to do it online again this year because I don't think that um, we are yet at a stage where six to 700 people are going to want to come and sit in a, in a hall at one time. Hopefully by next year, the situation will have resolved to some extent so that uh, uh, we'll be able to go live. Anyway, this year, the theme is the science of life and death, the science of life and death. And uh, we're going to have uh, chemistry professor Paul Bracker from St. Louis University, who's an expert on the origin of where life came from. He will discuss that. We will also have uh, mortician Karin Norzay, who is going to talk to us about what happens to the body after we pass on and the work of, uh, of a mortician, which is very interesting. She'll talk about occupational hazards due to formaldehyde, talk about embalming, uh, etc. And uh, so that, that will be the, uh, uh, the first night. And uh, then uh, uh, we will have uh, uh, McGill colleague, uh, Dr. Fellows, who happens to be also the Associate Dean of, of, of Science, Dr. Leslie Fellows, uh, who's an expert on the brain. And uh, she's going to talk to us about how we keep our brain alive longer. And I'm going to finish off things by talking about the hereafter and whether or not one can actually communicate with the dead and the history of attempts at such uh, communication. So there's some update stuff uh, uh, for you. Okay, uh, we do have actually a text uh, answer uh, about the oil question that I asked. And indeed, it is cottonseed oil, crude cottonseed oil. So uh, back in 1929, Chinese investigators did find this correlation between cooking in crude cottonseed oil and low fertility in men. 
and the chemical responsible was determined to be gossipol, which is a natural component of, uh, of cottonseed oil. And in the 1970s, the Chinese government began researching gossipol as a contraceptive, and it actually worked, but it had a side effect that resulted in low blood potassium. And in the 1990s, a Brazilian company actually planned to market Gossipol under the trade name Nofertil. Actually, pretty clever name if you think about it, but uh, never managed to do so because studies showed that it had unacceptable high rates of permanent infertility. But you know what? Research into using Gossipol as a contraceptive uh, uh, may have ended, but as an alternative to a vasectomy, research still continues. Now, those of you who have seen cottonseed oil in, in supermarkets, which of course is, is, is possible because it is still used in cooking, you don't have to worry about any, any infertility issue here because that was all with crude cottonseed oil. The cottonseed oil now is highly refined and it does not have any gossip oil, uh, remnant um, in it um, at all. So that's the connection between crude cottonseed oil and... Uh, uh, male infertility, and who would have ever, you know, guessed uh, that uh, there was such such a a connection? Uh, it's one of the interesting things about science is that you know you come across all of these uh, fascinating, what at first looks like uh, sort of a mystery, but then uh, eventually, of course, you do develop a, a, a rational explanation for it. Okay, uh, since we had an answer to that question, uh, let me uh, once more uh, go ahead and uh, give you a replacement question once more. Uh, polyethylene containers, and these are very, very widely used in, in industry. Many of the cleaning agents that you buy in, in, uh, are in polyethylene containers. The, the plastic uh, uh, milk uh, uh, jugs, you know, the, you buy half gallon or gallon of milk. Those are made of, of polyethylene, and they're used for many other foods as well. And uh, in order to reduce the passage of oxygen or moisture through the plastic, the surface can be treated with a certain gas. So that is, once the, the, the uh, container has been manufactured, uh, it is then treated with a gas. That gas combines with some of the molecules on the surface of the container in order to make it impermeable to oxygen and to moisture. I mean, of course, when you are storing things, uh, you know, like, like oil, for example, in, in, in such a plastic container, you don't want oxygen to go through because reaction of oils with oxygen can lead to rancidity. Uh, and similarly, you know, you may be storing some sort of substance in, in the container uh, where moisture is, uh, is uh, uh, you know, unattractive and you don't want it in there. So the question is, what gas would be used to treat uh, the surface of polyethylene containers in order to make them impermeable to moisture and to, to oxygen. We have uh, just about one minute for you to text your questions to 514-800. Let's see how quickly uh, uh, your brain is, uh, is acting. We've got one minute less. Let me, let me quickly tell you just a little personal story. Yesterday, I was out biking uh, on the uh, Le Petit train up north, 
And uh, I had something happen that hadn't happened to me, I, I think, ever again, even though I've been riding a bike for many, many decades. I got a flat. And this, uh, this flat was about uh, uh, 12 uh, kilometers from where I had parked the car. And uh, there was no other way of solving this problem than walking back. Uh, although I was uh, biking with, with uh, Jody, uh, of course, there's nothing that she could do to help me. Uh, but uh, so she kept going back and forth and, and accumulated about 50 kilometers while I walked back the 12 kilometers. But then anyway, then we went for a nice walk in, in Mont-Tremblant and uh, it was really a beautiful day. Uh, and uh, there's a hopefully a once in a lifetime experience having to walk a, a bike with a flat tire for 12 kilometers. Not great fun, but when you're walking on a nice path uh, in beautiful weather, uh, it's it's very doable. All right. I guess we will not get an answer to the question that I just posed. We will leave that over to, to next week. Uh, so you have a week to think about that. And that's it. We have run smack out of time. Once more, the hour has flown by, but we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz hoping that all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.